Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 83, Wicked Proud. Hi, I'm Nikki. And I'm Jake. This week, we're going to discuss Boston's first Pride Parade. It's Pride Week in Boston, and we had planned to bring you a show all about the history of Boston Pride this week, but we've been on vacation, and we've been kind of slacking on our podcast prep. So instead of a comprehensive look at Pride, we're going to focus in on the history of Boston's first Pride celebration back in 1971. But before we talk about Pride, it's time to take a look at this week's featured historic site and upcoming event. Since the Playland Cafe in the former Combat Zone closed in 1998, Jacques Cabaret in Bay Village has been the oldest gay bar in Boston. It originally opened in 1938, just a year after the Playland, and catered to a mostly straight clientele for the first couple of years. By 1940, Jacques started to attract a gay crowd, part of a community that was just beginning to come out of the shadows. At the time, being publicly outed could mean being fired, evicted, or worse. Yet, a burgeoning gay scene grew up around Park Square in the 1940s and 50s. While Senator Joseph McCarthy was on television in the 1950s condemning homosexuality as a gateway to communism, and while gay government employees lived in fear due to the lavender scare McCarthy created, Boston began to enjoy a range of gay bars that inspired writer Mark Thomas Crone to say, You would think that 1950s gay life in Boston was a depressing combination of secrecy, loneliness, and self-loathing. Except that it wasn't. Sure, it was risky, and certainly underground, but for those who went to bars, nightclubs, and restaurants that attracted a gay clientele, Boston gay nightlife was rich and varied and even glamorous. With the exception of the late 1970s, the variety of gay nightlife during the McCarthy era in Boston has never been equaled. Soon, Jacques was joined in the Park Square area by the Napoleon, Mario's, and the Punch Bowl. During this era, there were still raids where, as one patron recalled, they'd come in and line everyone up against the wall. The youngest cop would question us, ask for IDs, and call us faggot and other names. It was scary. If you didn't have ID, they'd arrest you and put your name in the paper. Despite the danger of being outed and losing everything, Boston's gay scene continued slowly moving into the public eye. By January of 1955, Jacques and the other Bay Village clubs were on a list of 11 Boston bars that all members of the U.S. military were officially barred from entering, which must have meant that plenty of service members were patronizing them before that. In 1965, Jacques narrowly avoided being torn down for redevelopment, with one city councilor fuming, We will be better off without these incubators of homosexuality and indecency. We must uproot these joints so innocent kids won't be contaminated. Through the 1960s and early 1970s, Jacques attracted a largely lesbian clientele before adding cabaret to the name and switching over to a format that featured drag shows later in the 70s. Boston Magazine quotes a period guidebook to say that by World War II, Park Square was the national headquarters for female impersonators. The proprietors of Jacques took the practice out of the shadows and put it on stage, where the shows have evolved into competitive drag reviews. Today, there's some sort of live entertainment each night, from drag karaoke, to comedy open mic nights, to full-on semi-professional drag shows. 
with pretty wild entertainment in what's otherwise a quiet residential neighborhood, Jacques has been fending off complaints from neighbors for as long as it's existed. However, it's also had its fair share of supporters, like this upstairs neighbor who rose to contest a noise complaint against the club at a hearing in 1973. The poor people are talking about their uh, noises. They're down the street. They're not on top of Jack's. I'm on top of Jack's and I can sleep nights. Being Boston's oldest gay bar isn't Jacques' only claim to fame. Regulars are adamant that the club is haunted, though they can't agree on what ghost stalks the halls. Writing in his New England folklore blog, Peter Muse describes the two competing theories. After a comedian said the energy he encountered at Jacques felt like it had a bit of an attitude, Jacques' manager suggested it might be the ghost of Sylvia Sidney, the bar's most famous performer. A drag pioneer known as the Bitch of Boston, Sidney eschewed the gentle femininity most early drag performers cultivated and instead indulged in a crude humor. Sidney died in 1998 at the age of 68, so perhaps her ghost still wants another moment in the spotlight. If you're feeling brave but don't want to summon Sidney's ghost, you can watch one of her performances on YouTube. Be warned, they're full of toilet humor, sex jokes, racial slurs, and nose-picking. Oh, and a really dirty story about Nat King Cole. I don't believe that Sydney died in a particularly traumatic way, but her ghost may not be the only one haunting Jacques. According to a rumor that has circulated for many years, the bar might also be haunted by the victims of the infamous and tragic Coconut Grove fire. Those who've been listening for a while may recall that we described the tragic 1942 fire at the Coconut Grove nightclub in episode 39. It was Boston's deadliest single disaster, killing 492 people in just seconds. The site of the Coconut Grove is just around the corner from Jacques. Muse continues, What's the connection to Jacques? Well, according to long-standing rumors in the gay community, Jacques was used as a temporary morgue for the victims' bodies. It is not proven, but is entirely possible. Photos show the bodies being laid out on Piedmont Street, so it's not inconceivable that the police would have used a nearby bar as well. According to the rumor, some of the victims still haunt the place where their bodies rested. We'll have a link to Peter Muse's article about the supernatural element at Jacques in this week's show notes, along with a link to the cabaret schedule so you can pick the best evening to visit. And for our upcoming event this week, we turn to the History Project. Since 1980, the historians, archivists, and activists of the History Project have made it their mission to document and preserve the LGBT history of Boston and to share that information with the greater public. They conduct interviews to capture the oral history of key events in the gay rights movement. They author books about gay Bostonians of the past, and, most importantly, they collect the documentary evidence that now serves as a primary source material for anyone researching LGBTQ history in Boston and around the country. They have collected the papers and records of early gay rights organizations in Boston, educational materials handed out in the early days of the AIDS epidemic, t-shirts worn by activists in the 1980s and 90s, the letters and papers of pioneering community leaders, and so much more. To celebrate Pride, 
The History Project is leading a tour on June 16th that traces the route of the first Boston Pride Parade. Here's how they describe it. Boston's first official gay pride march was held on Saturday, June 26, 1971. When the march took place, it sought to highlight four oppressive institutions in Boston. The police, the government, hostile bars, and religious institutions. This June, the History Project is offering a walking tour that follows the first Pride March's route and tells the story of the community groups, individuals, and issues related to the route. The tour will meet outside Jacques Cabaret at 79 Broadway in Bay Village. It will last about 90 minutes, and it will go on rain or shine. Tickets are $20, and they must be purchased in advance. Any additional donations will go to support the important work of the History Project. We'll have a link to the registration page in this week's show notes. In 1971, Boston's gay scene was still mostly underground. While sodomy was no longer punishable by death, as it was in the early Massachusetts Bay Colony, Sexual acts between consenting adults of the same sex were still illegal in Massachusetts, as they were in 49 of the 50 U.S. states. The city didn't yet have a newspaper for the LGBTQ community, as the gay community news wouldn't be founded for two more years, and the radical fag rag was just getting off the ground. No city, state, or national politician had come out as gay. High-profile advocacy groups like GLAAD wouldn't be founded until the end of the decade, though there were small local chapters of the lesbian Daughters of Belitis and the Gay Men's Mattachine Society. Nevertheless, a flyer was circulating through the bars and among the members of the Homophile Union of Boston that spring. It said, Two years ago on June 27th, homosexuals in New York City for the first time refused oppression as usual. They stood up when the Stonewall Bar on Christopher Street was raided. We and others across the nation commemorate that event this June. We celebrate the awakening of a vigorous gay pride and self-respect. The event they referred to in New York in 1969 was the Stonewall Riot. David Carter is a historian and author of the book Stonewall, The Riots That Sparked the Gay Revolution, which was recently adapted into a television documentary, Stonewall Uprising, for PBS's American Experience. Carter explains, Early activists in the gay rights movement said that gay people were triply condemned. They were condemned by the law as being criminals. They were condemned by religion as being sinners and by medicine as being mentally ill. One of the first problems you have in understanding what happened at Stonewall is one of the most often asked questions. Who started it and why they started it? And that question tends to presuppose an answer that there was one reason, one person, or one group of persons that created the Stonewall riots. I think it's true of Stonewall as it is of many important things in history, that it has multiple roots. If anything, what caused the Stonewall riots to occur were causes of very different kinds having to do with geography, social history, local political history, national political history, the weather, everything. There was a ratcheting up of police activity against gay people at the time, I think probably because of Mayor John Lindsay's re-election campaign. Also, keep in mind Greenwich Village was the main gay enclave in America at that point. At the same time, it was the most heavily policed. The police in New York City were more aggressive than police in any other large city in America at the time in terms of arresting homosexuals. And the Stonewall Inn was the most popular gay club in New York City. So there, you already have the foundation for a riot. 
At 1.20 a.m. on Saturday, June 28, 1969, four plainclothes policemen in dark suits, two patrol officers in uniform, and Detective Charles Smith and Deputy Inspector Seymour Pine arrived at the Stonewall Inn in Greenwich Village and announced, Police! We're taking the place! They were very, very wrong. History.com summarizes the early morning events at the Stonewall. Armed with a warrant, police officers entered the club, roughed up patrons, and, finding bootlegged alcohol, arrested 13 people, including employees and people violating the state's gender-appropriate clothing statute. Female officers would take suspected cross-dressing patrons into the bathroom to check their sex. Fed up with constant police harassment and social discrimination, angry patrons and neighborhood residents hung around outside the bar rather than disperse, becoming increasingly agitated as the events unfolded and people were aggressively manhandled. At one point, an officer hit a lesbian over the head as he forced her into the paddy wagon. She shouted to onlookers to act, inciting the crowd to begin throwing pennies, bottles, cobblestones, and other objects at the police. Within minutes, a full-blown riot involving hundreds of people began. The police, a few prisoners, and a village voice writer barricaded themselves in the bar, which the mob attempted to set on fire after breaching the barricade repeatedly. The fire department and a riot squad were eventually able to douse the flames, rescue those inside Stonewall, and disperse the crowd. Carter continues, Stonewall is only significant because it created the gay liberation movement. I'm glad people are interested in the Stonewall riots, but they also need to be interested in the gay liberation movement because Stonewall would have had no historical interest had it not led to the gay liberation movement. The first announcement of the Gay Liberation Front said, We formed because of Stonewall. Their first march was on the one-month anniversary of the riots. Just to concentrate on Stonewall without going into groups like the Gay Liberation Front or the Gay Activists Alliance is like studying the fall of the Bastille but knowing absolutely nothing about the French Revolution. The real change that Stonewall made was it transformed gay rights into a movement by taking a very militant stand and taking it to the level of the street. I think it also allowed gay people to begin to see themselves differently. I was a 17-year-old in Jessup, Georgia, and I remember hearing news of the Gay Liberation Front confronting people who were oppressing gay people, and I saw people standing up and courageously and successfully fighting back. That did change my mentality. You are not in an impossible situation with no hope. You can fight back, and you can possibly win. Stonewall changed everything. For the first time, gay people felt like they could stand up in public and in mass and demand their rights. In the following year, the first pride parades in the nation were organized in New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles. In February of 1970, the Student Homophile League was incorporated with members from MIT, BC, Northeastern, and other Boston-area schools. Official chapters were founded at Boston University and Harvard, as announced in the Harvard Crimson in February 1970. The Harvard group, with about 20 members and an executive committee of three, arose out of an organizational meeting held last Sunday evening the members decided to make the existence of their organization known, but have been generally wary of publicity. Homosexual acts, even between consenting partners, are illegal in Massachusetts, 
and all the other states of the Union except Illinois. The laws are rarely enforced, but homosexuality is still not widely socially accepted by the public. Homosexuals are often fired from their jobs, expelled from schools, and harassed by police when their homosexuality is revealed. In this country, there are an estimated 10 million homosexuals, but only such large cities as New York, San Francisco, Miami, New Orleans, Chicago, and Boston are comparatively safe for them. In the last few months, a gay liberation movement has been publicly allying itself with other new left movements. And on Wednesday evening at Harvard, a speaker from the Young Americans for Freedom defended the right of a homosexual to exist in a free society. As the first anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising approached, flyers with the headline, Love is All You Need, circulated through Boston, saying, One year ago this week, members of New York's gay community threw off the yoke of oppression, stood up, and fought back. It was Christopher Street Liberation. This event marked a new trend in the fight for civil rights for homosexuals, not just in New York, but throughout the nation. No more do we hide behind masks and fears, ours and yours. Come out. Meet publicly with us at any or all of the following special events. In June of 1970, there would be street theater, public meetings, and a gay in at the weekly rock concerts held on Cambridge Common. Though there was no parade, and the term was not yet coined, this was the birth of Boston Pride. In 1971, the first Pride Parade was organized in Boston, following New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles the year before under the rallying cry, out of the bars and into the streets. An editorial in The Advocate, which is now a bi-monthly magazine, but was then the only nationally circulated LGBTQ newspaper, points out how radical and liberating it could be to declare one's sexuality publicly and to simply participate in an event where being gay was treated as a good thing. We urge every homosexual who possibly can to take part, march, cheer, yell, or whatever, Experience the thrill of freedom, pride in yourself, and love in a way that few of us have ever felt before. Today, of course, pride is a celebration, a rainbow-tinted parade of good feelings. Though the inspiration for pride was found in the Stonewall Uprising, even the earliest pride parades were treated as celebrations. Except in Boston. Our first pride was explicitly political, as Catherine McFarland Bruce points out. Gays and lesbians in Boston adopted the pride idea of a public celebratory march uniting gays and lesbians by hosting a week of activities culminating in a march. Their march shows how, in 1971, the vision of what pride should look like was still in flux. While other pride events were notable for targeting culture, Boston's route included three concrete state and institutional targets by proceeding from police headquarters to St. Paul's Episcopal Church and ending on Boston Common in front of the Massachusetts State House. Anti-gay culture in the world still loomed as a target, as planners selected locations they saw as embodiments of this culture. While pride in other cities had already taken on the celebratory air that we know today, Boston was different. In 1971, our first pride parade was a protest march. Perhaps counterintuitively, the first target of the protest was not a symbol of the dominant heterosexual culture, but an LGBTQ-friendly bar. In fact, it was Jacques. While the bar was a favorite night spot for local lesbians, 
They believed that its management was deeply misogynistic, catering only to its gay male clientele, not to the many women who patronized it. On June 26th, as about 300 marchers gathered in front of Jacques and listened, an advocate read this list of demands. That the upstairs be for women only, and that all men there must be accompanied by a woman. There should be easily accessible fire escapes without locks on them. That conditions, especially in bathrooms, be made more sanitary. That we be allowed to disseminate literature of interest to the gay community inside the bar. That there be a woman bartender. That we have control of the music played in Jacques, and that we be allowed to choose records to go in the jukebox. That Jacques recognize a negotiation committee to implement these demands and others that come up in the future. This format set the tone for the rest of the parade. The crowd marched from Jacques to the corner of Berkeley and Stanhope Streets, where a large Italian Renaissance Revival building served as the headquarters of the Boston Police Department. Activist and fag rag editor Charlie Shively remembers the chilly reception they got. Everything was locked up, and although we hadn't announced which police station we would confront, they seemed to know we were coming. The building was totally dead, except for the ubiquitous camera lenses taking our pictures. A statement was read on the steps denouncing police brutality against homosexuals. This confrontation with the police drew inspiration from Stonewall, an urgency from the constant harassment that gays faced at the hands of the BPD. The list of demands was that all entrapment immediately cease, that vague laws such as those against loitering, disorderly conduct, and lewd and lascivious behavior not be used to harass homosexuals, that the police provide protection rather than harassment in the areas around gay bars, that representatives of the police force enter into immediate discussions with representatives of the homophile organizations to facilitate communication and understanding and implement the above demands. In 1973, an activist described the police entrapment he had encountered to WCVB. In situations that I've come up against, it's more, I call it more of an enticement. Police uh, place decoys, young, virile-looking state police officers in rest areas, let's say, and uh, they instruct them to enter into idle conversation with gay people and then take them further on into, uh, into the woods and wait for the gay person to make uh, a touching or, uh, or lewd remarks to them or something like that and then arrest them at that point. In fact, a famous 1978 case involving undercover cops soliciting sex in the men's room of the Boston Public Library would lead to the formation of GLAD, the Gay and Lesbian Advocates and Defenders, the establishment of a BPD liaison to the gay community, and a slow stop of the policing practices that had so enraged Boston's LGBTQ community. Next, the parade wound its way up Beacon Hill to the Massachusetts State House. Here, the list of demands was short, but it would take our Commonwealth decades to make good on them. Number one, that all the following laws pertaining to homosexuality be repealed. Massachusetts General Code, Chapter 272, Sections 34 and 35, and the City Ordinance Against Same-Sex Dancing Together. Number 2. 
that legislation be enacted to end discrimination against people in employment, housing, and in the use of public facilities because of their sexual orientation. It took until 1989 to get an anti-discrimination bill passed in Massachusetts. The Commonwealth's sodomy laws would remain on the books until they were overturned by the Supreme Judicial Court in 2002. As an activist pointed out to WCVB in 1973, the laws didn't prohibit any specific sexual act, but instead they condemned any Congress between people of the same sex as abominable and detestable crimes. The laws are not uh, worded to restrict any specific legal act, a specific act. They are worded in such a way as to prevent any abominable and detestable crime. Though it sounds trivial, the ban on same-sex couples dancing was another tool used by the police to harass and intimidate gay people. In an interview with the History Project, Preston Claridge describes what it was like when the police came to the popular Punchbowl Club in Park Square. About once a night, they would flash the emergency lights, which meant that the vice were coming, and you had to stop dancing with your boyfriend, since it was illegal back then. You could dance with a lesbian, or you could sit down. If you didn't, you could be arrested for violating the city ordinance, which, as we discussed before, could lead you to lose your job or your apartment. Having targeted the oppression of the state, the Pride Marchers then turned their attention to the church. Specifically, they chose to confront St. Paul's Cathedral, the Greek Revival edifice on Tremont Street opposite Boston Common. Regular listeners might remember St. Paul's as the third of Patriot hero Joseph Warren's four grave sites, as we discussed back in episode 33. Today, St. Paul's marches in the Pride Parade and hosts a celebration after the parade where all are welcome. In 1971, however, gay activists treated St. Paul's as a representative of centuries of persecution in the name of the Christian faith. Their demands were Number 1 that the church accept qualified gay persons for ordination and other religious work. Number two, that the church include comprehensive courses on human sexuality and seminary training and for men and women already in religious work. Number three, that it develop and use curriculum material on human sexuality in Sunday school or in church school. Number four, that the church recognize and bless the love of homosexuals as it does for heterosexuals. Number five, that the church lend its support to the re-examination of the institution of marriage and the family, which in its present form legally discriminates against homosexuals. Number six, that the church lend its support to the re-examination of roles based on sex, with particular attention paid to the fact that its support of these sex roles has oppressed women and homosexuals. Ironically, St. Paul's and the Episcopal Church more broadly recognized and implemented these demands faster than the famously liberal Massachusetts legislature did. St. Paul's hosted one of the first public services for victims of the AIDS epidemic, it celebrates the Transgender Day of Remembrance, and it is widely known for its ministry to the gay and trans community. In the same vein, the Episcopal Church was one of the first to create a same-sex wedding ceremony and to allow LGBTQ bishops. From St. Paul's, the crowd moved across the street and onto Boston Common. The parade was Gay Boston's official coming-out party, and as the movement was coming out of the shadows, so it only made sense to celebrate coming out of the closet as well. Catherine McFarland Bruce describes the dramatic end of Boston's first Pride Parade on the Common. During a rally following the march, participants focused more explicitly on culture, 
with a closet-smashing demonstration. After a man joyously emerged from a large brown closet, activists then destroyed the structure to dramatize the oppressive nature of the cultural pressure for gays and lesbians to stay in the closet by not revealing their homosexuality. Activist Charlie Shively recalls, The cardboard closet was ripped apart and thrown in a trash can, along with cardboard signs of infamous books by psychiatrists, whose names hardly bear repeating. Bruce continues, This dramatic display embodied the liberationist message that public declaration of gay sexuality would lead to both personal fulfillment and social change. Like other Pride events, the March in Boston protested negative cultural codes with a public demonstration that was sprinkled with color and festivity. But unlike those events, Bostonians targeted three concrete representatives of anti-gay culture and alternated its festive tone with a more somber one. Representative Barney Frank told The Globe, The Boston movement was intensely political from the beginning, and intelligently so. Since that first Pride celebration, the LGBTQ community has had many important milestones in Boston. We can't begin to cover them all, but here are some highlights. The Fenway Community Health Center, today known as Fenway Health, opened in 1971. Motivated by the belief that healthcare is a right, not a privilege, politically active area residents and politicians founded the organization as a -a one-day-a-week drop-in center in the basement of a building owned by the Christian Science Church. The center was staffed by volunteer medical students dedicated to serving the diverse Fenway neighborhood, a neighborhood that includes many seniors, gays, low-income residents, and students. In 1986, the mission statement was revised to reflect Fenway's commitment to the gay and lesbian community. Today, Fenway Health's mission is to enhance the well-being of the lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender community and all people in our neighborhoods and beyond through access to the highest quality healthcare, education, research, and advocacy. In 1974, LGBTQ activist Elaine Noble became the first openly lesbian or gay candidate elected to a state legislature. She served two terms as representative for the Fenway and Back Bay neighborhoods of Boston. She described the campaign as being very ugly. It included her windows being shot in, her car being destroyed, her campaign headquarters having their windows broken, and her supporters suffering serious harassment. Nevertheless, she persisted, and she was sworn into office on New Year's Day 1975 by Governor Michael Dukakis. In 1978, Gay and Lesbian Advocates and Defenders, known as GLAD, was founded by John Ward in response to a sting operation conducted by Boston police that resulted in the arrest of more than 100 men in the men's rooms of the main building of the Boston Public Library. GLAD filed its first case, Doe v. McNiff, that same year and eventually all those arrested were either found not guilty or had the charges against them dismissed. Now known as GLBTQ Legal Advocates and Defenders, the organization works to end discrimination based on sexual orientation, HIV status, and gender identity and expression. In 2003, GLAD received national attention for its work in winning marriage rights for same-sex couples in Massachusetts. In Goodridge versus the Department of Public Health, it successfully argued before the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court that to restrict marriage to heterosexual couples was a violation of the state constitution. 
Thanks, John Adams. We liked Chief Justice Margaret Marshall's definition of civil marriage so much that we included it in our wedding readings. Marriage is a vital social institution. The exclusive commitment of two individuals to each other nurtures love and mutual support. It brings stability to our society. For those who choose to marry and for their children, marriage provides an abundance of legal, financial, and social benefits. In return, it imposes weighty legal, financial, and social obligations. Without question, civil marriage enhances the welfare of the community. It is a social institution of the highest importance. Marriage also bestows enormous private and social advantages on those who choose to marry. Civil marriage is at once a deeply personal commitment to another being and a highly public celebration of the ideals of mutuality, companionship, intimacy, fidelity, and family. It is an association that promotes a way of life, not causes, a harmony in living, not political faiths, a bilateral loyalty, not commercial or social projects. Because it fulfills yearnings for security, safe haven, and connection that expresses our common humanity, civil marriage is an esteemed institution, and the decision whether and whom to marry is among life's momentous acts of self-definition. I'm not crying, you're crying. In 2016, True Colors, Out Youth Theater, a program of the Theater Offensive and the country's largest and longest-running LGBTQ youth theater program, received a National Arts and Humanities Youth Program Award from First Lady Michelle Obama. True Colors is the first program dedicated to serving LGBTQ youth to receive the prestigious award. Executive Artistic Director Abe Ryback remarked, True Colors' cultural impact over a generation has been instrumental in helping create not only a safe space for LGBTQ youth to express their creativity and tell their stories, but has also contributed to the progress and advances we have seen for the entire LGBTQ community. As we continue to focus on the challenges faced by LGBTQ youth, from family rejection to bullying to homelessness, this honor is inspirational and a validation of our impact. Just as importantly, this inclusive group of talented youth exemplifies America's dynamic cultural intersections. With all these advancements, it's important to remember that the work isn't done yet. In 2016, Massachusetts passed a public accommodations law to address discrimination against transgender people in public spaces. Huzzah! Unfortunately, a referendum to overturn this law will be on the ballot this November. Boo! A yes vote keeps current protections in place, and a no vote would shamefully set us back. Let's keep in mind that transgender individuals continue to experience threats and violence at shockingly high rates. And since this bill went into effect, not a single cisgendered person has been attacked in a bathroom. To learn more about the origins of Pride in Boston, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 083. We'll have a link to Catherine McFarlane Bruce's book, Pride Parades, How a Parade Changed the World. Links to the flyer promoting Pride Week in 1970, a Boston Globe photo gallery from early Pride Parades, and a Globe article about Boston's role in providing the intellectual underpinnings for the national gay rights movement. And just for fun, I'll post some of my favorite pictures from recent Pride Parades. 
And of course, we'll have links to information about this week's featured historic site and upcoming event. Before I turn it over to Nikki, I have a fun announcement. Do you have a smart speaker at home? If so, it just got even easier to listen to our show. If you have an Amazon Echo, just say, Alexa, play the Hub History podcast. Or if you have a Google Home, you can say, Hey Google, play the Hub History podcast. Sure, playing the latest episode of Hub History, our favorite stories from Boston history, the Battle of Jamaica Plain, episode 79. Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please think about writing us a brief review. It's the best way to help others discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next week 